Welcome to Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good of American Exception. Today, David Talbot and Bryce Green and I are going to be talking about a number of things, including two recent articles from David and from me. First is Dear Joe Biden, Bobby's Life is in Your Hands. That's from David. And the second one is The World in Crisis, Why We Need Kennedy's New American Foreign Policy. Uh, we're also going to be getting into, as we always do, the deeper political historical background uh, to discuss things related to all these subjects. Devil's Chess Club is an American Exception podcast. Please support American Exception on Patreon if you can. Now on with the show. David Talbot, great to have you back with us. Yes, thank you, Aaron. Bryce Green, how are you doing out there? Uh, doing good in Bloomington. Just got cold here. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Now, uh, we are, I want to talk first, David, about your recent article. There's more it, it, about the Secret Service aspect of the Robert Kennedy campaign. So I want to pull up uh, a shot of your own article and ask you about it. Um, Dear Joe Biden, Bobby's life is in your hands. Why on earth does the Biden administration continue to deny Kennedy Secret Service protection? And before you can comment on this, I want to put two, I want to mention two recent news items that are relevant here that you cover so the first is one that we've talked about already in september heavily armed man adrian paul isporo was arrested in la at an rfk event not far from where rfk senior was gunned down and this was um very worrisome he was impersonating an officer and it was a very weird kind of thing and we don't know who put him up to it and then last week another man jonathan mack was cited by the lapd for climbing over a fence at Kennedy's home in LA. Then he was released by LA, the LAPD and he went right back to RFK Jr.'s home the same day and was trespassing again. Uh, the LAPD concealed and destroyed key evidence in the RFK case, uh, the assassination case in 1968. Again, they seem lax. Is it ineptitude or is it something else? Uh, David, what do you, uh, what, what, how worried should we be about this latest incident? Well, you know, look, I think Biden's repeated denial of the re request that Bobby has made for Secret Service protection is outrageous. And as I say in my column for the Kenny Beacon this week, uh, it puts Bobby's life in danger, obviously. Uh, there's been break-ins at his house, as you alluded to. Uh, there's this guy who showed up as, with uh, heavily armed at one of his campaign events, and uh you know, uh, the guy, by the way, who, who scaled his fence is a, a successful realtor in the area. What the hell was he doing? Uh, climbing over the fence twice in the same day. So Bobby is obviously a target for both crazies and for something perhaps more sinister. Uh, his father and his uncle <clears throat> were both killed by conspiracies. I've written and dozens and dozens of researchers have documented. And that has become now accepted by most American people, that JFK and Robert Kennedy Sr. were the victims of high-level plots. Uh, the CIA was involved in both of their assassinations, as Robert Jr. has said. So there is every reason for President Biden to provide him with secret service protection. He's pissed off virtually every power center in the country, Bobby Jr. He's pissed off the military industrial complex, Wall Street, 
big pharma, uh, the chemical industry. Uh, he's he, as an environmental lawyer, he's often sued these people, uh, and his campaign rhetoric is based on uh, you know uh, criticizing the corporate control of Washington. is one of the major themes of his campaign. So he deserves, uh, given all that, uh, protection and the top protection. Instead, he's been forced to pay, dig into his own campaign coffers to pay for private security, Gavin DeBecker, uh, which is a big private security firm. Um, that can only last and should only last for a short time. There should be federal protection provided him and, and to every major candidate. Uh, for the president, but particularly a Kennedy, particularly someone who's antagonized the powers that be in this country. And uh, I know we're going to talk about, I'm really pissed today about the left response to this. On my Facebook page today, uh, there's a lot of lefties who I know who are saying President Biden is right to deny him this. He's a rich guy, Bobby Kennedy, he can, you know, take care of himself. Uh, they don't understand the history. They don't understand the Kennedy presidency that was violently terminated in 1963. They don't understand the current campaign of Robert Kennedy Jr. for the White House. So let's talk about the left and uh, its stupidity. Yeah, I mean, if the if it was decided that secret that presidential candidates who are at all viable should have Secret Service protection based on what happened to Robert Kennedy in 1968 there would seem to be absolutely no basis for denying uh, RFK Jr. this protection when he's polling around 20% as an independent a year out, which is pretty, which is unprecedented. And his favorability is higher than both of them, especially the overall gap of like net favorability. He's way ahead of the other two people. Trump has, you know, more money than uh, RFK. And no, they're not, these people are not saying that Biden needs to make sure Trump doesn't have secret service protection. I mean, this is uh Kennedy has a way of triggering people, I think, and making them kind of, uh, you know, irrational, especially the establishment, you know, left liberal types like uh, the kind you're talking about. What, what, what is it? Well, how, how would you justify not giving him protection while giving Trump protection? Well, look, I understand what Biden is doing. He wants to bleed the Kennedy campaign as long as possible, force him to pr uh, protect himself, uh, as I said, through private security. It costs a lot of money for 24-7 protection, not only Bobby, but his family is it's at like risk. Hundreds uh, of thousands of dollars every month, right? Like Exactly. Uh, at least three or $400,000. He's got to dig into his own pocket to pay for that. Um, so, you know... Uh, that should be, as you say, Aaron, uh, when you hit 20% in the polls, uh, you should get that protection if you're running the for threshold president. threshold was 15%. Exactly. Now. So, uh, look, I understand why Biden's doing what he's doing politically. What I don't understand, uh, again, <laughs> for the millionth time, is the left. People I respect, uh, like Noam Chomsky, uh, Howard Zinn, the late historian and others who didn't understand uh, the how the Kennedy presidency in the early 60s challenged the Cold War orthodoxy. And Aaron, you've written about this, and you can talk more about this. It was a radical departure from the Eisenhower presidency, from the Cold War elites. Uh, Kennedy, as president, was trying 
to he did open up back channels to Russia, the Soviet Union, to Khrushchev in Moscow, to Fidel Castro in Havana and Cuba. He was deathly afraid, a student of history, that the great powers would stumble into a nuclear uh, Armageddon, which we nearly did during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 62. Uh, that was Kennedy's, and, and by the way, Teddy Kennedy, who was senator, told me this as I interviewed him for the book, my book, Brothers, and Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, told me this. He was with Kennedy for a number of years, and he said Kennedy was deathly afraid of, he'd written, he'd read extensively about World War I. He understood that they could blow it, the leaders could blow it, superpower leaders. And this time it would be unimaginable disaster if it were, there were nuclear exchanges. So JFK was determined, I think, to break from Cold War orthodoxy and establish detente with the Soviet Union and with Castro. Uh, of course, Cuba was a hot spot in those years, uh, Cold War hotspot. So, you know, for Zen, for the left, highest stone, for, uh, for Chomsky, people we have great respect for, the intellectuals, the left, not to understand this history, not to understand how Kennedy represented something very new, something very, very radical within that um, world, the world of power, um, is just, I think, ignorant. Uh, and, and today's left is repeating that mistake when they un don't understand the, why the campaign for the White House that Bobby Kennedy Jr. has undertaken is both courageous, as we've talked about, because he knows the risk he's taking, and also radical, because he's taken on all the powers that be in this country. Uh, he's saying captured Washington. And well, there is one out. lobby, David. There is one Army. lobby that, that RFK has been skirted rather gingerly around. Uh, yes, there's one lobby and we can talk about that too. But he's antagonized every other powerful uh, force in this country. That is uh, definitely true. And I think that's something that his critics on the left are like willfully blind about, um, you know. Oh, oh yeah. Even when I talk, when I talk to people, you know, my age about Bobby Kennedy and uh, I do that, I do that occasionally. Um, they're usually dismissive. Uh, a lot of the reasons have to do with, you know, that singular lobby that he doesn't uh, confront and seems to uh, uh, at least be influenced by to a significant degree. Uh, and that, you know, that makes sense for my generation, especially who grew up learning about uh, the injustices of American empire. And one of the main ones that was right in their face that continues to this day is Israel. And so when they see someone who isn't willing to confront, uh, you know, one of these long standing issues, well, they're understandably dismissive of this. And I'm sympathetic to that, but I do see, you know, uh, other sides. I do see how he represents a, a threat to, you know, a significant part of the American power establishment. Uh, you, you see him talking about, you know, peace, uh, like rolling back the American empire, which is horrifying to a lot of them. Um, but also a lot of young leftists are pretty cynical when they hear that language. You know, they, they see a, a rich guy, uh, they don't understand that history of the Kennedys that you just went through. They don't understand um, how they represented a departure from the American power elite uh, consensus on foreign and domestic policy. Uh, they they represented a departure from that, but they don't they don't see that. They see a guy from a rich political family. You know, the Kennedys are in the same level as 
you know, like the, the Clintons or the Bushes or or whoever. They're just another political dynasty. And then they see him talking about these sorts of issues, uh, you know, about freedom and justice. But then a lot of them will ask, well, where were you in 2016? Uh, and then where were you in 2020 uh, when these issues seemed to be breaking through to the mainstream? But uh, he wasn't a major part of that. And so I do understand why young people are dismissive of that. I don't quite know why it goes to the level of wanting to deny him Secret Service protection. Uh, but, you know, maybe they just haven't thought that through. Uh, my generation is pretty glib when it comes to that sort of thing. And they are probably thinking to him, to themselves, like, oh, well, he's a rich guy. He's just a Kennedy. He can hire his own private army if he wants to. Uh, but uh, they don't they don't see they, they've tapped out a lot of presidential politics. And again, we've talked on this show, like I'm kind of sympathetic to that. Uh, but, you know, the, the full picture is usually obscured. Yeah, I I think a, a lot of young activists and a lot of the left in general, unfortunately, has uh, drunk the Kool-Aid uh, about any radical like Bobby Kennedy who represents something new. They listen to NPR, they read The Nation, Mother Jones, and they're deluded. Uh, they don't know why and what he stands for. Uh, I... By the way, so the one big gorilla in the room that we have <laughs> skirted around, let's talk about, is Israel and Gaza, which I think is a war crime. I think what's happening in Gaza right now uh, is a war crime on the part of Israel and the Netanyahu regime, the president there for life, apparently. Uh, I think he's a poisonous influence on that country and needs to be removed as quickly as possible. And and frankly, protesters in Israel were in the streets just weeks ago trying to remove him and his power grab, uh, trying to take control of the uh, Supreme Court in that country. So um, this, it, to me, is the grill in the room. A number of people close to Bobby, including me, have said to him he needs to speak out about Israel and Gaza. Uh, his silence is disturbing. Uh, he apparently is going to do that next week, and I'm very glad that he is. Jeffrey Sachs, the noted economist, uh, did a column today uh, in the Kennedy Beacon, which is uh, I write for and Aaron writes for and is aligned with Bobby's campaign. And he that was the first, I think, major breakthrough, that column by Jeffrey Sachs, because he called for peace uh, in the Middle East. And that's a major uh, thing given his stature, Jeffrey Sachs, and uh, his influence over Bobby. So uh, I know that campaigns for the White House um, are big aircraft carriers. It's really hard sometimes to move them. Um, and a lot of people want his time, want his ear, and talk to him all the time. Uh, but this is a major, major issue, as you know, Bryce, and, and they are not just a moral issue. It's a pragmatic one. My sons were out in the streets last weekend protesting uh, the bombing campaign uh, that Israel has unleashed on Gaza. Uh, there are many young activists uh, in the streets. If I were able to do that physically, medically, I would be I out, was the out there yesterday. That, good for you. I was so out there yesterday. I, I support that. I support that protest. And I think it's begun to have some impact on the Democratic Party. More people signed a petition on Capitol Hill for a ceasefire than ever before. 
I think that's good. And Biden is having to think twice now about some of his bellicose rhetoric, uh, which I think is good also. And behind the scenes, I think they're pressuring Netanyahu to do the right thing, I hope. Because uh, children and women, innocent civilians are being killed every day wantonly by the IDF. And we need to, to stop that violence as soon as possible. Yeah, and I, I, I noticed that our vice pre our president here, I'm going to I want to get into this foreign policy angle. Uh, so I'm going to first show uh, just to hammer home the, the point of the absurdity of the Secret Service aspect. I have a photo of Biden here in front of the bust of RFK that's in the Oval Office, uh, as I understand it. So th this is it's really something that he would be denying this. He would have a bust of the assassinated leader and then deny his son's Secret Service protection. But that's that's where we are now. Well, getting so into this it shows the, the hypocrisy of this administration, as I say in my column, he wants to be the environmental president, yet he uh, approves the huge uh, Willow oil drilling project in the Arctic, Alaska. At the same time, he again, again, he's done this two step where he's endorsed pro-labor environmental uh, things, and then he's undercut them at the same time with other decisions. And he talks out both sides of mouth, uh, his mouth about the Kennedys. He loves them. They're the bust of Bobby Kennedy's father. And at the same time, he's uh, actually uh, putting his life at risk, uh, the son's life at risk, while he employs the Kennedys in his administration, like Caroline Kennedy, like Bobby's sister, Kathleen Townsend Kennedy, who worked for Biden. So uh, to me, I'm outraged by this duplicity in this case because I'm a friend of Bobby's, I support him, and uh, I think his life is uh, at risk. I tend to think that Biden is a person who is uh, an empty vessel for what we could just call the deep state or the, the overall balance of coalitional forces of the establishment, whatever we'd really want to say. I have to believe at least the Democratic is, side or, or that side that just kind of is over both of them. But yeah, he, he represents that 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 wing of it. Um, but he I'm guessing. I would surmise that he has people would like people or well they want to keep the option open to assassinate our FK Jr. just like they assassinated his his father and uncle and that if the Secret Service protection is not there then that could be a sort of cover story as to why it happened and then the, then the question would be like oh why did why was it incompetence on the part of Biden and the state not to protect him it was they were playing politics and isn't it sad oh no but like in, in reality, if they get rid of the, if the Secret Service is there and he gets assassinated, then it points more clearly to the state again. So I, I tend to think it's not even so much about bankrupting them, that it's Biden taking orders from somebody else or some other group of people, and then it's perhaps for, uh, probably for a more nefarious reason. Yeah, who knows what Biden is at this point? He's an old, doddering leader. He's been around forever. Uh, he's... Uh, goes along with the powers that be, as we know. He doesn't stand for for much. I, he wanted to be FDR in the New Deal at the beginning, and he made some, uh, you know, uh, steps in that direction. And yet now he seems to, as you say, be a captive of these uh, more powerful forces. And I don't think he knows at this point who he is, um, what he's doing yeah. there. Uh, 
I think he's, uh, you know, kind of a dithering fool, uh, and he's fallen into the hands of the wrong people. And so, uh, you know, I think Trump at least knows what he's all about. He's a demagogue. He's leading a right-wing white nationalist revival, and he knows who his base is, and he plays to them. Uh, he's full of himself. He's narcissistic. He's a demagogue. It's all about him. Uh, I think Bobby Kennedy is the only one in this race, the only serious candidate. And I love Cornell West. I think he is a great candidate, but he'll never win. We know that for uh, political and racial and, and economic reasons. Uh, Bobby, I think, does have a path to the White House. And I think he does represent something different. Uh, I agree with you, Bryce. When you talk about presidential politics, I understand why people, your generation, because people my generation are sick of it. Uh, we don't believe in it. We think that change happens elsewhere. And But I do think this time that Bobby Kennedy Jr. represents something different. And that's why he's getting holy hell from the corporate media. Every day I, I get the Google alerts about the articles, that, negative articles that are written about him, and everywhere from the Daily Beast to Newsweek to New York Times. And let's let's be honest: some of this, some of this media is actually owned by the CIA. The CIA heavily moved into uh, that space and using people like Roger Penske. And I've written about this and bought up a lot of these so-called independent. Uh, media outlets, uh, like the Hollywood Press, is completely owned by Roger Penske. He got investment from a CIA-connected billionaire and from the Saudi government. That's how he went on a buying a media buying spree his, for his media empire. So as somebody said, that in the old days, the CIA had to pay to influence certain journalists. And there's a big scandal when Carl Bernstein wrote about this years ago in, the, in Rolling Stone. Nowadays, the CIA simply owns the media. I mean, you turn on MSNBC and CNN, and they have a parade of people from the CIA, from the FBI, from the NSA, and they don't even blink. They think that's normal to have all these people from the national security world be there talking at every fucking night. So it's disgusting. The media in this country is completely uh, an arm, a uh, propaganda arm of the power structure. Yes, uh, I think that that is, it, it really is kind of an allegory of the cave thing. And you think of the of the Greeks and uh, how they, they really did kind of call and sum up a lot of aspects of civil, human civilization. And just that allegory of like powerful people being the ones casting the images of the light on the wall and that you, you've got to be pretty clever to actually recognize that that's the situation that you're in. And that's how you become the sort of philosopher, the critic of your own uh, cult, the cultural apparatus in your own civilization, and most people just are are enthralled to the dancing shadows on the wall, and that's that's uh, something we have not yet overcome, despite whatever rhetoric about the free press. And it's a part of this ruling regime uh, that's a global that has global aspirations and that has since the end of World War II. And that's what I wrote about recently, which I think is something that we can that will allow us to talk a little bit more about this, the, the business with Israel, because that was really why I wrote this piece. Uh, I, the title was The World in Crisis, Why We Need Kennedy's New American Foreign Policy. And um, it, it, it was my attempt to say that a lot of most of what RFK Jr. has been calling for with a new foreign policy and a campaign centered on peace is in line with what his uncle and father were trying to do. 
And the one outlier in this area is the state of Israel and his support for them, which he announced kind of uh, almost defensively as a way to like, you know, refute accusations of anti-Semitism or like, why would you support this anti-Semitic person, Roger Waters? And he didn't even seem to be that versed in the debate to know that he shouldn't, wasn't supposed to support Roger Waters in the first place. And then he came out like, you know, the second coming of Alan Dershowitz talking about Israel and it has caused me some consternation, no small amount of consternation, I will say. But so I wanted to go and write an article that was, <laughs> that was going to call attention to the to the whole uh, the lack of continuity on this issue or the, how it's not congruent with what he said. And so I, I, I want to point out a few things about Kennedy's policy without reading the whole thing. But Kennedy, JFK, was committed to said this to Arab leaders committed to U.N. Resolution 194 which resolved that refugees should be able to return. They should be permitted to do so. Uh, if they choose not to, they should be compensated for lost or damaged property. This was the, uh, uh, what they recognized needed to be done in the name of justice for the Palestinians because this was a catastrophe and a violation of international law for the state of Israel to be established this way. And this was recognized and was a mainstream thought in the U.S. for a while. It's just it's amazing how the conversation changed. Uh, a memo from Kennedy pointed to uh, what was going, what was happening here with Israel and the U.S. Israel was saying it won't accept any refugees and no progress can be made in the immediate future. We cannot accept this. So this is like very, this is the most, uh, the strongest stance president of any president ever took against Israel was under the Kennedy administration. We cannot and will not accept the status quo. We want and expect Israel cooperation uh, repatriation and plenty of resettlement. So he was wanting to, everything Kennedy was doing was to move things in the opposite direction of where they are now, where Gaza is this outdoor concentration camp. And, and then sometimes they break out of the concentration camp and kill some Israelis for reasons that aren't that hard to understand. And then they just go and slaughter them and flatten whole you know, city blocks. Uh, and the U.S. is you know, cheering them on. This is not what Kennedy wanted. The other aspect here that I think is really important is the nuclear one. And here, Kennedy also stood up more than anyone else, gave a near ultimatum to Ben-Gurion, saying that, that the U.S. commitment to and support of Israel could be seriously jeopardized, okay, if they continued to uh, stonewall on the nuclear issue. And Ben-Gurion, this is late in Kennedy's life, he didn't realize it, but it was, Ben-Gurion resigned rather than accept receipt of the letter, and the most plausible explanation for this is that he didn't want to deal with the letter. Um, and a State Department memo right around the time Kennedy was killed uh, was circulated and it asked, uh, couldn't the Israeli government acknowledge just once that the U.S. had a defensible position in attempting to maintain good relations with the Arab states? Now that is coming back to bite us in the ass again now because we're in a position where if we really back Israel to the hilt, it could set off a regional war. It will forever make the U.S. and Israel totally villains in the eyes of the Arab world and the global south. And so they've really painted themselves into a corner. So this is the last thing I wrote. Now in fall of 2023, or it's one of the last parts. Uh, as Israel opts for a maximalist military response, global opinion will likely turn decisively and perhaps irreversibly against the U.S. and Israel. This is not the worst of it. Other countries could intervene to defend the stateless Palestinians against the Israeli military. This could spiral into a regional conflict with the potential to go nuclear. So this is what I've been trying to what I wanted to point out to other people, and I hope that some people around Bobby's orbit or, or that are familiar with the campaign in any way, that more of this will filter to him. And I know, David, you've tried to reach out to him 
uh, and other people like Dick Russell have and other friends of his. Uh, if he this is this would seem to be the key issue, and it fits into what Sachs is calling for is compatible with Bobby's idea of establishing a totally new orientation for the U.S. toward the, uh, toward the rest of the world. It's, it's world peace could be within our reach if we just stop to think that, like you know, the other alternatives of Israel going around and just killing everybody in some bigger war. These are these would be disastrous for us. These aren't even good from an imperialist perspective. So how how can we how can we make this this happen? We don't need another president who's going to continue with these policies. But we we're waiting. We're waiting for. Kennedy to say something. Well, look, it's, we know how powerful that lobby is in this country, uh, that uh, pro-Israel lobby. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, the Kennedy Beacon chose to run your column, Aaron, and I'm glad that it's running the column by Jeffrey Sachs today. I think even within the Kennedy campaign, as you say, there's been a lot of ferment, a lot of uh, advice given to Bobby from people who are close to him, including me. So um, I hope that he comes out with a great statement next week uh, that uh, he's been working on and we can all live with that. Uh, but you're right, what's happening uh, in Israel right now can be tied to what Bobby said about Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. It's the U.S. again provides the weapons, provides the arms for all these conflicts. The U.S. Uh, empire throws its weight around around the globe whether it's uh, through uh, supplying weapons or our intelligence or uh, our military bases, which encircle many of the countries that we're supposedly opposing. Uh, you know, we've surrounded uh, uh, Iran, for instance, with our military bases. I mean, this is an American empire. There's no doubt about it. And wherever we perceive a challenge from Russia, from China, uh, from Hamas, uh, you know, there we are with our guns and ammunition once again. Ceasefire. Yeah, I think the American people are sick of it, sick of paying for it. You see this now with the uh, rebellion within the Republican Party. People are sick of paying for Ukraine after two years. Uh, the war drags on and on. It's a meat grinder, as I put in my column. Uh, it's killed uh, much of the young people in Ukraine, as well as uh, Russian soldiers. Uh, enough already. This should be so. David, David, I, I heard I heard somewhere that the average age of the Ukrainian soldier is now like forty three, which yeah, is yeah, well, horrifying. It's killing everybody. It's killing. I think decimating that society. I mean, it'll take billions and billions of dollars to rebuild that country after the war is finally over. So. Um, Look, Bobby has been very articulate, speaking out against uh, this imperial kind of uh, conflicts around the world like Ukraine. He should extend that. I agree with you, Aaron, uh, to Israel right now and what's happening there. So um, I believe, by the way, uh, Jeffrey Sachs advocates in the Kennedy Beacon, the two-state solution. I believe the settlements have really killed that as an option. Uh, the Israel keeps building new settlements on the West Bank and encroaching on Palestinian territory. I think that solution is dead. I'm more of an advocate of what the Jewish intellectual Peter Beinart uh, and this book right now, I highly recommend by an Israeli philosopher, the Haifa Republic. Uh, he too argues for a one state solution. 
for Palestinians and Israelis living in a secular country together. Uh, it, you say, oh, that's impossible given all the history, the hostilities between the two people, but the same is true of black Americans and white Americans in this country. I mean, there were lynchings a uh, hundred years ago of black Americans and uh, those uh, the black Americans uh, fought for their rights and organized. And finally, uh, before the law at least, uh, achieved equality and still have to struggle uh, to implement those laws. But if it can be done here, if it can be done in Ireland, where uh, people hate each other, Protestants and Catholics live side by side, it can be done also in Israel and Gaza and the Palestinian territories. I'm for a one-state solution, Palestinians and Israelis having equal rights before the law. Yeah, and you know, the, the comparison between uh, the the racial segregation in America, I think is one that people can understand here, uh, at least to the extent that they understand the civil rights history of this country, is that these uh, settlements, you know, uh, their role is to bisect and divide uh, the territory in the West Bank to the point where, you know, Palestinians have to go through several checkpoints if they want to go from one city to another. Uh, and so that really eliminates the idea of a two-state solution. But uh, this idea of two peoples living together in the same state under with the same rights under the law, the same, you know, democratic rights. I mean, that's something that people in America can understand that even if we had a history of uh, Jim Crow and uh, slavery and all the uh, racial oppression that comes with the American history, you know, brutal history, uh, we can still create a semi-functional state. Maybe I'm being too generous with that, but uh, it, it does, it does function. You know, in Israel, you see the same arguments against uh, allowing Palestinians to be part of the society that you heard from oh, racist white Southerners. You heard the same thing. You said, like, well, if we integrate blacks into our schools, our our towns, our uh, our media, well, they'll just hate us and they'll just try and kill us all. So it's best to keep them in cages. Uh, and, you know, you hear that argument used and deployed repeatedly here in America to talk about Palestine. But I think making that comparison uh, helps people understand what's actually going on and what the potential solutions might be. Yeah, I mean, even uh, like I alluded to in uh, Northern Ireland, too, uh, Protestants and Catholics are blowing each other up, killing each other, neighbors, uh, people lived next door to each other. The hostilities there were extreme and during that period, during the tr what they called the Troubles. And, of course, that was finally resolved. Uh, during the Clinton and Tony Blair era, uh, thank goodness. And there's still tensions, obviously. Uh, Catholics are still discriminated against in that country economically and still have to fight for the rights and demographically uh, maybe uh, will overcome <laughs> the uh, Protestant uh, population. Uh, finally, there are more Catholics than Protestants. And of course, Jews worry about being outnumbered by Palestinians as well. But look, they both have historical claim to that uh, part of the world. They're not gonna go away. Israel is nuclear armed. They're not going to be driven into the sea like some enemies want. There will always be Jews in that part of the world. They have to learn to live together, Jews and Palestinians, in a secular state. I, I agree. That's the only, to me, the only viable solution.
Yeah, I felt that the two-state solution was dead for quite a while. However, and I, it's this is above my pay grade, so I'm only speculating about things that I have no uh, delusions about my ability to influence one or the other. But I would say that the one thing that might revive the two-state solution is the idea that if they don't do it, the one-state solution will be imposed upon them. And I think that they may be able to get those nutters out of the West Bank and that, uh, and that if, if they did that, it could be a good thing. And I think either way, either way, a two-state or a one-state solution would, I think, change the character. I think that some of the country in that, I think some of the people, some of the most odious people, like when you see those videos of people who've like come from Brooklyn and now they're in the West Bank, you know, and they're, which, and they didn't, there was no desperation that drove them there. It was just fanaticism. Like those kind of people, I think might just leave that, leave the region and the region will be better for it. Brooklyn, if they, you know, if they return to Brooklyn, uh, wouldn't, would be worse for it, but I'll take that as an American. We'll take a, take a, take a hit there, take that L by having those people return to the United States, if it would make peace in the area. And then you would have a, 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 a perhaps a UN force, perhaps a joint UN force to make sure that those people are, uh, relocated. And if they're not going to, you know, go back to the Israeli side, then like they would be forced to move. It would be a, a bad the scene, problem, but I think it may Aaron, actually be possible. The problem, Aaron, with the two-state solution is it's not just a few nuts that uh, make it impossible, a few Jewish uh, extremists. Now, some of the settlements are quite large. There are half a million people, 700,000 people. You're not going to move those cities from the West Bank. Yeah, uh, I agree. I agree. It's very, the, very, very difficult. The settlement uh, movement has been out of control for a long, long time. Uh, and it goes back to the founding of Israel, frankly. Uh, the territory given the Palestinians in the first agreement was inferior uh, land. That's why there was a war at the very beginning. So uh, I believe they share that holy land and, yeah. and Palestinians and Jews. And they have to find, like blacks and white Americans did in this country, like Protestants and Catholics did in Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland, find a way to live together side by side. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly enough, preferable. if you yeah, if if you look at the actual uh, the like what diplomats and people are saying in academics, uh, there was a report in the New York Times a couple of days ago about how the uh, two state solution is now being talked about more. There's talk of like a peaceful settlement. There's talk of a, a you know a, a solution to this issue, uh, something that wasn't happening before uh, you know October seventh and and the years before. And setting aside the feasibility of a two-state solution, which uh, I think we both agree is uh, remote, to say the least, the fact that people are now talking about a peaceful settlement, about restarting peace talks uh, for the nth time, the fact that they're at least talking about it, I think marks a, a major sea change in how the rest of the world views this conflict and America's role in it, but also even in American uh, political spaces. I mean, we have we ever seen... Uh, like a State Department official resign uh, over uh, America's treatment of or, or, or American foreign policy? Like, have we seen that in the last like decade or two decades? Uh, I, not in my lifetime, at least to my knowledge. Um, maybe you guys have better insight on that. But, you know, the, people are fed up with this and they've been living with this issue hanging over everyone's head for decades and decades. Uh, and so this, there's a sea change, I think. But let's talk about why there is no peace in Israel. And it ties really uh, to our original theme about assassinations. Uh, 
You know, the last leader in Israel who was seriously leading the peace movement was the man responsible for the Oslo Accords, Yitzhak Rabin. He was prime minister of that country, and he was assassinated by an extremist connected to the Netanyahu, uh, uh, I think, regime or his uh, movement, uh, who thought that he was putting Rabin Israel at risk by talking about peace with the Palestinians, by fighting for peace, by pushing through the Knesset, the parliament there, a peace plan, uh, with the help of the Arabs, by the way, in the Knesset, and the Arab voters who voted for him. So uh, he was assassinated. He gave his life for peace, Rabin. And he was an old warrior. He was a general. He was not uh, some uh, wimpy liberal. Uh, so the same with Bobby Kennedy today. His father and uncle were killed trying to uh, resolve the Vietnam War, in Bobby Kennedy's case, as senator in 1968. And his older brother, JFK, as president, trying to find peace with the Soviet Union and with Castro. And the Cold War racket in this country, which is, a, you know, makes people a lot of money and powerful people are connected with the military industrial racket, uh, killed them. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind. That's why uh, both candidates were killed. So not to provide protection, the top Secret Service protection for Bobby Jr. to me is criminal. And for Biden to withhold that protection is criminal and an outrage. And he should come under daily pressure to provide that uh, uh, protection. Because the fact is that power rules by the barrel of a gun. And we don't like to say that in America. We like to think it's a democratic process and it's all done peacefully. Bullshit. I mean, it's ugly politics in this country. And sometimes it's very violent as uh, black Americans have found out when they uh, stood up for their rights. They killed Martin Luther King too, for a reason uh, in 1968, because he was about to lead a very powerful coalition to occupy Washington in the Port March later that year in 1968. And I interviewed, as I said in an earlier episode, Bobby Seal, the leader of the co-founder of the Black Panthers. And the Black Panthers were gonna march with Martin they were joining that coalition. And that was Bobby, that was Bobby Sr.'s idea. So you're, you're right. talking about the Black Panthers, MLK, and Robert Kennedy rolled into one movement yep. for racial and economic justice and peace. That's the last mm -hmm. time we had that, I think, amazing coalition of forces in this country was 68. And they killed both of those leaders, RFK and Martin Luther King Jr. So uh, they rule by the barrel of a gun, often, uh, the powers that be. Uh, they kill people, get in their way, whether it's Rabin in Israel uh, or Bobby Kennedy and John Kennedy here uh, and Martin Luther King at home. Yeah, let me let me add a, a wrinkle here that is like this gets into really dark areas that we are, we know that at the top of the the apex of this regime there's some sort of very lawless murderous uh, force, right? And that's the, the mainly the we could t it's the distilled idea of empire is more or less what the U.S. went for at the end of World War II. And it really cannot be but dark and pitiless at the top. Now, after Kennedy is killed, 
uh, those forces really put a veto on democracy and they kind of crossed the Rubicon in a sense. They were saying like this idea of like the domestic democracy and the empire, it's not, if it's, if it comes down to it, the empire will veto the democracy. And that's what we saw. And the Israel angle on this is interesting because the presidents do after the Kennedy's successor does a 180 and backs Israel when Israel launches, you know, a pre a, a preemptive, I would say unprovoked war on Nasser. And, uh, and then even in the process attacks the U.S., attacks a U.S. ship in the Mediterranean, the USS Liberty, uh, intentionally, apparently to blame it on the, on the Arabs or to obscure a, a massacre they were carrying out. People disagree about what it was about. But then the next year, 19, and that's the beginning of the, you know, the crisis in Gaza and the West Bank as it is in its modern form under occupation and or now just an open air prison or concentration camp in Gaza. But that really starts with the 67 war. The next year, the, the next major kind of deep event, the, uh, you know, dark political assassination is in 1968 with, uh, of course, MLK, but then RFK is killed by a guy and the person they set up, you know, who had been working at what Johnny Rosselli's racetrack uh, beforehand, uh, the person they use as a patsy is a Palestinian. And the U.S. really, after that, becomes much more belligerent and they use Israel in different ways, like to start, you know, that war in 73, along with the Arab countries. That's more of a pretext or a cover story for like a huge oil price increase that really saves the dollar. So Israel like saves the dollar. Uh, Israel has been used. It, there were there were Israeli figures in Iran Contra, uh, and, and various you know deep state chicanery all throughout the you know the eighties and you know and beyond. Partner in crime. Imagine. I mean, does Israel has Israel because they are the ones who are, it's not just like Alan Dulles and it's like, you know, just business, just what's good for corporate America. Like they have an actual kind of I, you'd have to call it a kind of fascist metaphysic, whereas the U.S. version of fascism is more like, well, it's just business. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll kill people if we have to, but it's for business. Israelis are more harsh. You know, when you look at the connections between like Epstein's blackmail network and Maxwell and, and Israel intelligence, I mean. Has Israel been, because of its fanaticism, have have they played an outsized role in what we could call the supranational deep state or the delegation of dark arts, you know, to and covert operations? I mean, have they been a sort of repository for this for reasons of uh, expediency for the U.S. that like Israel will do it? They're not under; they can't be scrutinized by Congress. You can't really attack them. Or you'll be called an anti-Semite conspiracy theorist. I mean, they've—they seem to have played that role, and they are kind of immune from being criticized too much, because of the—you know—it's a—it's a third rail. I mean, what what role does Israel play for the U.S. beyond just what the we can say about the Israel lobby? I mean, are they just a part of this empire, and does that explain why they're they're so untouchable, and why even somebody like Bobby is so uh, delicate around this issue? Yes, that's the <laughs> quick answer. <laughs> Everything you just said. Um, look, I haven't looked extensively into uh, the political influence of the Israel lobby in this country, but what I do know uh, is alarming. Um, James Jesus Angleton, who was head of counterintelligence for the CIA throughout much of the Cold War, very a powerful and influential figure, you know quite well, <clears throat> was an intellectual, a former poet, and it was he who created the legend of Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald, 
um, as a you know a misfit, as a communist sympathizer, as a as someone who wanted to kill the president. None of which was true. Um, he was an agent, a low-level intelligence agent. That's why he defected to the Soviet Union, and that's why he's brought back here with ease to kill the president, supposedly. Um, and he was set up. He was what he, what he said to the press after he was arrested. He was a patsy. The guy who created uh, the legend of Oswald, the guy who was very influential in the CIA, was basically an agent of Israel as well as the U.S., according to Robert Amory, who worked for the CIA, was another CIA officer. He called Angleton an Israel, Israeli agent. So I think uh, Angleton, among others, was quite close to Mossad, was quite, quite close to Israeli intelligence. When Angleton died, he got the highest Israel honors, state honors, um, that they could provide at that point. Uh, according to some people, uh, Israeli representatives were at his bedside as Angleton died. Uh, so, you know, Israel, I think, has played a very key role uh, from, yes, Angleton to Jeffrey Epstein to Jonathan Pollard, the, the Israel spy who was held in this country for many years, uh, throughout its existence. And they do so as, I think, a kind of intelligent way, very intelligent, very organized way, Israeli intelligence, and a very strategic way because they're, they feel their existence is at risk. And they feel they're in a neighborhood in the, in the world that's very dangerous. They're surrounded by enemies. So they will do practically anything to get nuclear arms, to defend themselves. And I understand that kind of defensiveness, but I also think it wreaks havoc at times with the U.S. political situation. And with themselves at this point, I mean, now they're they're. they're I don't think it's. I don't think it's in the in the be their best interest. I said earlier what I thought was in the best interest of Israel that you have one secular state where Palestinians and Jews learn to live side by side. Or they kill each other. That's the option. Uh, so, yes, organized crime was another junior partner of the U.S. empire. And they, as we know, the CIA used organized crime to do a lot of its dirty work uh, throughout uh, history. And uh, I think Israel plays a certain role like that has a junior partner of the U.S. empire. And sometimes, they, sometimes they overlap because Lansky retired to Israel. That's right. That's right. Sometimes uh, those interests overlap. Uh, so I do think that Israel has played very efficiently, very effectively, the role of junior partner for the American empire. And that's why we've decided to support Israel. It's not, not just because it's the only democracy in the Middle East, which is kind of true and kind of nice, but we support it for strategic reasons uh, and give them heavily. So uh, that's up to us, the uh, U.S. taxpayer, to call that into question. Uh, what? How much do we want to, uh, you know, supply Fortress Israel, and to what extent is there our interests, or does it isolate us more and more in the world, which seems to be the case lately? Yeah, and I feel that uh, it, it's easy to look at what they have done and how they have not had it for decades. They have willfully 
made it so that there wasn't anything other than some kind of horrible final solution as a way to deal with this Gaza problem. And I don't think that they're going to be able to pull that off. But I feel that just like the Americans, I mean, we're similar. The, these two countries, Israel and the U.S., they got swept up in imperial madness at the end of World War II. And they had a lot of power behind them and were able to do horrible things because imp powerful imperial imperialist forces just do what they do. At this point, like, I'm not really thinking justice and prosecutions. I'm thinking truth and reconciliation in both countries because we are all, I think we're all kind of Israelis now in a sense. And that, like, if we're Americans and we're looking at this honestly and we're actually thinking that we want to make this a democracy, then we have to think that we have really gone. We've been a party to horrible, horrible things that we need to take stock of and we can't continue to do it anymore. And because we can't continue to do it anymore, we don't have the money and power to bedazzle ourselves and make myths about ourselves in the same way either. It's all going to come become more and more obvious that we've been a villainous force, I think, since the end of World War II. And that goes for the U.S. and that goes for Israel. And somehow, if with the fact that we still have some power left, we should take advantage of this moment and then create a world where we can move past this. And I think that that would be better for for everybody in the long run. The world would think more favorably of of both parties, the the Americans and the Israelis, in the long run, if they do that. And I don't think that they have the opportunity not to do that. And so, but who is who's going to take the initiative to do this? This is this is the question of the hour. Well, again, it comes in the room. <laughs> yes, adults, exactly. But it, again, it comes back to me to honoring, to remembering. Uh, that Israel was created by the Holocaust, this uh, extreme historical event uh, in Germany, in Europe, during the, uh, before and during the war there in World War II. The, the exterminationist uh, ideology of, of the uh, Nazi regime. And then Israel was created also by the uh, terrible uh, tragedy of the Nakba, of the removal, forcible removal of the Palestinian people. So the new Israel, the new secular state that I'm advocating has to be uh, built on a mutual acknowledgement of those two tragedies that created, that creates that country. And then you have to move on. Just like in this country, I think the reparations which Bobby Kennedy has endorsed uh, are important to understand the historical crimes committed by the white elite in this country who profited from the slavery, uh, the uh, black people. Uh, and so we have to move on then after we acknowledge a painful history to uh, a new country uh, where hopefully uh, one that's more equal. So I do recommend the, this book, <laughs> which I just finished reading this morning, Haifa Republic by Omri Baum, B-O-E-H-M, uh, Israeli philosopher. And he does advocate this one-state solution that I said Peter Beinhardt and others in this country have advocated. I do think it's the only uh, possible solution given how the settlements have really gone out of control and how Israel has grabbed more land, uh, you know, occupied land. And uh, at this point, uh, you know, obviously we have to stop the violence first, the ceasefire, and then have to, I think, advocate that position uh, in this country and in Israel as well. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Bryce, last words here before we, we wrap it up. Uh, last words. Well, 
What I what I'm concerned about, uh, you know, aside from the major ethnic cleansing going on, the genocide, and the fact that everyone's supporting it, is that uh, some people might not uh, wake up. You know, in the in the political in the political arena, you know, people can weather tragedies, people can weather scandals, uh, people can weather ignoring all the protesters in Black Lives Matter, and. You know, when things are off the TV, when they aren't being beamed to people, when they aren't being forced to confront them, uh, sometimes people forget. And uh, we can only hope that this political moment will awaken more people, more politicians, more members of that, you know, political and media class. They're, you know, basically the same same group of people. It'll influence them to be more serious when it comes to not only Israel policy, but American foreign policy in general. And uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, we're already seeing it. I'm already seeing a change, at least on my campus. You know, I'm already seeing, uh, you know, professors who I've seen who were, you know, more pro-Israel uh, take a step back and, you know, think twice before uh, reverting to the old uh, APAC playbook of <laughs> of responses to criticism of Israel. So hopefully we'll see that. Um, yeah, that's, that's my big think, yeah. I think it's. I think it is changing. I don't think it's going to return to the way it was before. I personally have resolved that I'm not going to pull punches about Israel anymore. I was at places where I saw people take a lot of flack over stuff like that, and I thought, well, it's more trouble than it's worth. But I, I don't think that that's going to be the case anymore because I don't think that there's really any putting the mask back on Israel at this point. The, the idea that it's like somehow a beacon of anti-racism in the world is like now so preposterous, and uh, it's now it, it's been exposed as as a a bad project that uh, needs to, that can't continue the way that it has. And I think more people are going to be candid about that, which is a good thing. Yeah. Unless it leads to nuclear war. When then I'm not happy about that. <laughs> That'd be a bummer. Yeah. That would be a real downer. That's like super bad for you. It does <laughs> feel like we're on the brink of either world peace or nuclear war. And that's a very yeah. strange thing. <laughs> yeah. That was like the old, the old satire headline when Michael Jackson was in every headline, uh, he's still living, is Michael Jackson and 8 billion others die in nuclear holocaust. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. Gentlemen, thank you both very much. Uh, this was a great discussion. All right. Thank well, thank you, you very much. Devil's Chess Club is an American exception production. Special thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and to Casey Moore for the graphics. To get first access to episodes of Devil's Chess Club, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. Subscribers get access not only to Devil's Chess Club, but to the rest of the American Exception podcast, over 150 episodes dealing with the deep, dark politics of U.S. empire. After that, you can find episodes on Rockfriend premium and they eventually go on the american exception channel on youtube and there's even a rumble american exception channel really a devil's chess club channel for both of these uh, please check the show notes for links to the articles and to the book on the one state solution that david was talking about this whole thing with bobby kennedy and israel palestine has been very depressing david and i still hold out hope that he will modify his position Many people seem to think that we are wrong or maybe delusional. We may prove to be wrong about this, but I don't think we're delusional. Let me offer some hopeful items, which may be obsolete by the time this gets released, but uh, you know that's the chance to take. Okay, first, as we were just discussing, 
The Kennedy Beacon published my article on a new Kennedy foreign policy, and that was encouraging. Then, as you can see here, Jeff Sachs put out a very good piece at Common Dreams, Israel's chance to turn carnage into peace. Put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, given that Sachs has endorsed Kennedy and that he is such a respected academic and, it must be said, one of the establishment's most cogent critics of U.S. imperialism, I know there aren't that many, um, he, this is important, I think, or at least it's encouraging. Then there were a couple of tweets from RFK. Okay, I'll talk about both of these here. Uh, this is very small, but it's at least something notable. Uh, from Jeffrey Sachs. Presidents Biden and Xi are about to have a summit meeting. How clever of the administration to argue that we are sending hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians to their needless deaths to show how strong we are to China. Worse than the dominoes of the Vietnam War era. What a horrendously misguided foreign policy. And then he has another tweet, related, and he links to an antiwar.com article, uh, which is you know just denouncing American empire and military spending. Uh, by coming out for urgent diplomacy and peace in Israel and Ukraine, RFK Jr. will do the right thing and win the election, hands down. Well, maybe this is some foreshadowing because he hasn't really come out for diplomacy and peace in Israel yet, but we are hoping uh, that that will happen anytime soon, that he will come out with some more comprehensive proposal about how to deal with Palestine and Israel, uh, and we are hoping that he can salvage something good from this potentially or at least something better than what we've seen so far but on a less encouraging note he uh, tweeted this about bill ackman uh who had been a supporter of kennedy and this is a, a letter i don't know if kennedy read all the way to the end or not because uh, a lot of it deals with you know anti-semitism and tolerance of anti-semitism it would seem that kennedy is promoting something that goes against his defense of free speech pretty clearly especially at the end of the letter when Ackman talks about using, uh, trying to blackball uh, people or you know blacklist people who had been critics of Israel and so on. I mean, that seems to be the implication. Now, as far as the free speech angle goes, it seems pretty hypocritical for him to be talking about cracking down on what seems to be protected speech. Uh, an out is that Ackman doesn't really specify exactly what kind of things he's talking about. And so there are forms of speech which we do uh, you know, have, which are not protected. Uh, which would be things like uh, incitement, slander, libel, and so on. So, uh, and harassment, you know, I think as for a university, you'd expect them to police that. But my sense about Ackman's gripe is that he doesn't, he thinks that any discussion of Israel is something that should be protected by uh, DEIJ sort of diversity and inclusion measures and so on. And I'm not sure that that's going to fly. In fact, I think that's pretty ludicrous. Um, so my hope is that he is doing this, uh, Kennedy, that he's doing this to so, show some support and sympathy for pro-Israel backers like Ackman uh, as he heads into announcing a more comprehensive assessment uh, of the conflict. The letter is ridiculous, and it's essentially calling for measures that fly in the face of his uh, you know, positions in support of free speech and his opposition to censorship. So maybe Bobby Kennedy will... will you know, modify his position. We'll see. A couple other things I want to talk about that are, I think are important uh, here. Okay. This is an article, again, from Pepe Escobar, and it covers something very important, which was not reported that much in the West that I saw, which was Russia's subtle change. Well, not subtle. It's perhaps pretty dramatic. Uh, change in policy towards Palestine. Um, here is a quote from Putin himself. 
which I think is uh, speaks to what a lot of people are feeling about the, what's happening right now. There's no justification for the terrible events taking place in Gaza now where hundreds of thousands of innocent people are being killed indiscriminately without having anywhere to flee or hide from the bombing. When you see bloodstained children, dead children, the suffering of women and old people, when you see medics killed, of course, it makes you clench your fists as tears well in your eyes. So that's a pretty strong statement. Now, this uh, is where he, he gets into more of the details, and I think that this is where Putin is and Russia are actually putting the context in the correct, uh, the conflict in the correct context. Okay, uh, this, this is a quote from Putin where he says, Who in reality is behind the tragedy of peoples in the Middle East and in other regions around the world? Who has been organizing the lethal chaos and who benefits from it? Well, who? Uh, the current ruling elites in the United States and its satellites. Uh, they are the main beneficiaries of the global instability that they use to extract their bloody rent. The United States as a global superpower is becoming weaker and is losing its position, and everyone sees and understands this, even judging by the trends in the world economy. This chaos will help it contain and destabilize its rivals. Okay, this is what they hope, the U.S. foreign policy imperial managers. Uh, political opponents. Uh, really geopolitical opponents, sovereign independent countries who are unwilling to kowtow and play, to the role of, play the role of servants. He's saying again, the U.S., all these conflicts and chaos it sows around the world are really just a, a way for it to maintain its dominance and to punish geopolitical opponents, adversaries that try to have any sort of independent foreign policy. The ruling elites of the United States and its satellites are behind the tragedy of the Palestinians, the massacres in the Middle East in general, the conflict in Ukraine, and many other conflicts in the world, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and so on. Okay. The Russian president has effectively lumped Israel in with the Western hegemon and its agenda of chaos. So this is further than he had gone before. He would speak about NATO and the U.S. Uh, as major problems for him uh, and for Russia, but now he's really putting Israel in that same group. This is, uh, I think, important, and it's setting the stage for the, the, the U.S., the Western world, against pretty much everybody else. The rest of the world is united against the U.S. and Israel here, by and large. Now, this part, multipolarity's prerequisite is peace in Palestine. So he gets into the gist of the conflict and why it's going to be tricky to resolve. Uh, the immutable, he, this is his assessment, which I'm not sold on it, but it may well be the case. The immutable exclusionist Zionist project is now dead on arrival. Uh, the least bad solution so far is the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative, which if this is making you raise your eyebrows, this, he, he sort of corrects this, you'll see. Uh, an independent Palestinian state back to the 1967 borders with East Jerusalem as its capital, okay? Which we all know is a difficult thing to do, although perhaps not impossible, but I, I could be wrong about that. Maybe it is totally impossible. The problem is how to convince out-of-control Zionism to back off. Include, uh, this will have to include severing the Washington to uh, Tel Aviv weaponized, securitized umbilical cord. So he's saying, like, you have to, if you're going to have any solution here, you've got to get their maximalist Zionist people to back off and modify their positions and expectations. And to do that, you're going to have to make it not Washington's ward forever with a blank check. Uh, expelling the neocon Christian Zionist matrix in the U.S., which happens to be deeply entrenched in silos across the deep state. Yes, this is important. Uh, not the, the, you have the Christian Zionist support 
you know, these right wing sort of fanatical people in the U.S. But this part where he says silos in the deep state, does that mean missile silos? Well, maybe he's trying to invoke that, too. But also just different parts of the clandestine state. I mean, they have it seems that the U.S. has outload, out, outsourced many uh, black ops to the Israelis over the years. I mean, that seems to be what was going on with the Epstein thing. And who knows what else? Uh, a lot of Israeli uh, figures surface in things like Iran-Contra uh, and so on. Um, make of that what you will. Okay, these imperatives are impossibilities in the short, medium, and even long term. So he's got a grim assessment about the ability, uh, the political will of anybody to do anything to solve this problem, which history justifies that skepticism. Uh, for all practical purposes, the two-state solution is dead. The only viable solution is the supreme anathema for all uh, for the Zionist project, uh, one state with Jews and Arabs living together in peace. That may well be what is needed. Uh, without a just solution for Palestine, tangible peace across the emerging multipolar, uh, multipolarity spectrum remains unattainable. Um, peace continues not to be a priority for the empire of chaos, and it will take a Russia with perhaps a China to shift the game. For me, this is like, this is the key. It seems that peace should be about to break out because these two, you know, entities are not doing so well, the U.S. empire and the, the Zionist project. And yet, uh, what's going to happen? Are they going to, can peace break out or are they going to keep staging, you know, different outrageous uh, escalations and provocations and so on? So maybe Bobby Kennedy will rise to the occasion and maybe he will not. Uh, maybe there is hope for American statesmanship in 2024, because that has to be well, what we need more than anything. I think if the, the world will be able to overcome this, most likely, if we don't blow it up. But for the U.S. and the world to have a better outcome in the short, medium term, U.S. statesmanship, if, if we could somehow find some, would be the best thing. Um, so this is maybe there is really no hope for American statesmanship. This seems to be the, the view of people on the left, uh, many of them. And uh, I think that there's plenty of reason to think that that's the case. Uh, I would rather not give up so easily. I don't want to resign us to a beautiful symbolic protest unless it's clear that there's no hope for anything else. So in short, this bigger game is being played and it gets into the things that Pepe is alluding to with Russia and China and multipolar, multipolarity and Israel is a part of that now. And Russia is actually putting that at center stage with uh, Putin's recent comments. Uh, in short, this game is a huge, is hugely impactful and it will be historically. Uh, its outcome will impact the whole of humanity. Whether we like it or not, it matters what happens on the devil's chessboard.